Welcome to Modern Immortality. My name is Matt Bulos. This is the podcast where we talk to experts across fields to examine how they relate to mortality. Today's guest is Dr. Ashwani Bapat. She's a palliative care doctor and entrepreneur. She trained at Tufts University in Yale. While she was on a traditional academic medicine trajectory, she started asking herself, what does a good day look like? which propelled her to move abroad and become an entrepreneur starting web-based businesses. Ashwani tells us how she incorporates the question, what does a good day look like into her patient care and how she relates to mortality. Ashwani, thanks for being here. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure, I am a board certified palliative care doctor and I'm also a caregiver coach with Epine MD Coaching and This is where I really help family caregivers advocate for their loved one and actually be heard by the providers that they're working working with so that their loved one gets the medical care that actually aligns with their values. And I guess my the journey that led me there is, you know, I went through very traditional um, medicine training. I did my internal medicine residency and fellowship in hospice and palliative care at Yale. And then I worked at uh, Mass General in Boston, and I was an instructor at Harvard Medical School. And what I noticed throughout these experiences was that the caregivers that would often be present at the bedside of my patients were the ones that had a ton of questions And a ton of those questions were not fully answered by the medical team for for various reasons. And I often felt like those family caregivers would leave the hospital or they would leave the clinic with more questions than they had initially. And so part of what we do through our caregiving coaching and why why, uh, my colleagues and I co-founded EpineMD was really to give them the tools to better advocate for their loved ones so that they actually feel heard. Yeah, I think that's an amazing insight to have. Um, it sounds like you maybe even had that before you got to fellowship. And is that <laughs> was that insight why you went down the palliative care road? Um, so I had actually never heard of palliative care till midway through my residency. Um, and my experience with palliative care had been just watching. I was literally like observing a palliative care clinician who was consulting on one of my patients. And I noticed that very quickly within maybe the first five or 10 minutes, this palliative care clinician was able to establish trust and rapport with this patient and, um, their partner, very quickly and they were able to get to kind of the crux of what living well meant to this person they were able to get very quickly to what they wanted out of medical care um, what was the purpose of these treatments from the perspective of the patient and their partner and what they were hoping for going forward and i was pretty impressed by how quickly they got to that conversation and how important that conversation was. And I was, to be honest, I was in awe um, because these were questions that 
um, are so important to think about, like, what, what do you actually want to get out of your medical care? Mm-hmm. How is the medical care going to work for you? Um, and these were questions I was not used to asking in my general uh, history and physical <laughs> when I chatted with a, with a patient. And so um, I felt like those types of conversations were honestly the reason I went into medicine because those types of conversations um, really promoted connection from one person to another. That's beautiful. And I think that we should all lead our, maybe not, not, not necessarily all initial encounters, but maybe we should with what do you expect from this experience? What do you expect from this medical care? And then that just helps everybody frame things on the same page from the beginning. Absolutely. I mean, I think when it comes to, I think about even simple things like, you know, taking medications for your high blood pressure. Um, Oftentimes those types of decisions are pretty straightforward and most people will, you know, pretty much follow through with that. But even at that level, you can ask, you know, what is the point of this blood pressure medication? Well, the point is so that it helps you live much longer and to avoid certain complications so that you can live life fully in the way that you want. Um, So you don't, you know, like even at a simple level, like a blood pressure medication, you could definitely ask that question. You often don't need to because it feels, perhaps it feels obvious. Um, But I think for me, what I've come to understand is like a lot of medicine, or I would say like all of medicine is really a tool to help you live well, however it is that you define it. I think the blood pressure medicine example is a really good example to start with because Mm -hmm. there's so many different classes of blood pressure medications that are applied in the use case of heart failure. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me think of several patients that said, oh, I don't need to take that anymore because I don't have high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And you're just so far down this road that the medications were never explained on an individual level that despite your blood pressure being normal, that this is not for that. This is for heart failure. And it like, so what seems obvious to you and I as physicians is not always obvious to the patient and just having that ability to establish a rapport to explain the use of each individual medication pays dividends, not only for, you know, prescribers later, but also for the patient who is living with a terminal condition. But there's just so much fear and avoidance of talking about these conditions that are, they are chronic, but things like COPD and heart failure are inevitably most likely going to be the cause of death for the people that have those conditions. And if you can get people to understand why they're taking their medication specific to heart failure, not so much COPD, that's a different conversation. Um, then you, they might, you know, get to that five-year yeah. uh, mortality or, you know, push the limit with all the new medications if they could just understand why they need to take them. Then anyway, I, it's, a, it's a beautiful point and good example. Um, do you remember your first encounter with mortality personally? Yeah, I mean, 
personally, I, I would probably have to go back to when I was maybe six or seven years old. So I was pretty young. Um, and what I remember about this experience, I actually haven't thought about it in a pretty long time, um, was that we got a phone call in the middle of the night, which is usually a bad sign. <laughs> and I found out later that the following morning that one of our family friends um, was calling us because her husband, who was, I believe he was a grad student at that time, he was on campus and he had a sudden cardiac event and died like right then and there on campus. And I remember when my parents shared this with me, um, I think they, they said it in more simple words. Mm -hmm. um, I just remember thinking, you know, how can someone go from being alive one moment to just dead in a matter of minutes, seconds? Mm -hmm. um, how do you make sense of that? Because I think we had just seen uh, we had just seen him maybe a couple weeks earlier. And so even at that age, I couldn't understand, you know, how do you go from hanging out, like having lunch together, playing to just not being there. Right. Um, and that was, I, I think I still struggle with that, but that was definitely one of those questions that came up when I was younger and I would ask my parents. And of course they would maybe not want to talk about it as much. I was going to ask if they actually were open to the discussion or if they just kind of tried to get past it as quickly as possible. I mean, I was young. I think they just tried to get past it. Um, and I can understand why it's complicated. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's totally fair. There's, there's no right answers here. <laughs> um, <laughs> The the point that you're saying that you still have difficulty with someone being here, you know, five minutes, five hours, five weeks ago, and now they're gone. Like, what have you kind of, what are some of the working conclusions or interpretations that you've come up with so far? I think one of the things I've definitely learned is that a death, um, it doesn't matter, you know, a death of, let's say, a five-month-old, a five-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 50-year-old, a death will always be unnatural. Um, and I have also seen that a death of a 90-year-old, of a 95-year-old, a 100-year-old will also feel surprising uh, for the people that are around them, uh, for the people that... Um, a relationship with this person. And so I think the conclusion I've come to is that death often will feel unnatural for most people. Um, and there, I would say just a, f a handful of, of examples where, um, where even if that person was accepting their dying process, the family around them or their friends or whoever those important people were, it will always be shocking and surprising. Um, and I think the, I, I think that is true. And I think that will always be true. 
and on at the same time i see kind of um life and death as i see kind of death as uh being a part of living you know, I think of the, I remember as a kid, I had this thing called a Mobius strip. It was, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's this, you cut off a piece of paper, a strip of paper, you twist it, and then you tape it together. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, this piece of paper no longer has two faces. It actually, if you were to draw a line, that line would go on both sides and there actually aren't sides because you twisted it. And so I think that's what I see now is that uh, dying is an integral part of living and okay. living is an integral part of dying. Yeah. Uh, that description of that tape made me think of like a DNA helix. Mm, yeah. It, yep. It's twisted just like that. And, and it, as a child, I always found it fascinating because you would take this strip of paper that had two sides and the moment you twist it and tape it together, it had only one side. That's pretty, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to imagine a kid being interested in that. And I think that's unique. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I was interested in that. I just couldn't understand how, like, if you were to draw a line on that strip of paper, um, you would have to flip it over to draw it on both sides. But the yeah. moment you twist it, you can keep going, and it would end up on, quote, both sides of that paper. So that's yeah. a whole other thing. That's cool. I'm going to have to look that up, a Mobius strip. Yeah. Okay. Um, you hit on one of my favorite words. I mean, I think really much of life's experience is this coin, and one side of the coin is acceptance, and the other side of the coin is avoidance. And when you said, like, even if a patient has accepted their fate and they're, you know, comfortable and, and okay with the trajectory of their life ending, there's oftentimes many family members that won't be there yet. So have you picked up any patterns in the people that have come to acceptance? Mm-hmm. Um. So I will, the folks that have come to acceptance in, in my conversations with them, right, the, the stuff that they're willing to share with me, um, they do have a, a sense of peace in terms of, I actually found that it doesn't really matter how old they are. Um, you could, I've had patients that are 30 year old, 30 years old, and they have found this acceptance. I have patients that are, you know, like 90 years old and have found this uh, acceptance. Um, I usually don't see pediatric patients, so I can't really speak to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I have found that those people, they, when when I say acceptance, that doesn't mean they don't often... that they don't also feel anger, that they don't also feel sadness. Um, they do. They, I can think of many, 30, like some of the patients I've seen that are angry that they have this illness and they're dying from it. They feel really sad to leave their family behind. They feel sad that they're, quote, putting their family through this. Um, they don't want to go. And at the same time, 
as those emotions, they also feel like, you know what, I, I, I see where this is going and there, maybe there are certain things I need to do before I die. So let me take care of those things. And once they do, there is a sense of, um, okay, I am here now. Um, and I'm at this point where, yeah, I'm probably dying from this. Um, do you so think I, it's do you think it's a combination, or do you think it's holding acceptance and yeah. grief and grieving oh, at the same time? Yeah, you, I have never met a single person who had this piece but wasn't also grieving. Absolutely, it happens at the same time. Like in so many conversations, um, I with a with with a patient or with a caregiver, whoever, you know, they'll often say, you know, I. I, I can't wait to see my daughter graduate and from high school, let's say. And, you know, like when you do the math, his daughter is going to graduate from high school in maybe 10 years. But this illness is progressing so fast that, I, you know, we don't think he's going to have 10 years. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, in that same conversation, they'll also say, you know what, I've, I want to make sure I fill out the healthcare proxy, that I have my living will in place. Um, I want to think about kind of my religious rights at the end of life in the same conversation that they're also telling me that they hope to see their daughter graduate yeah. in years, you know? And so absolutely, I think it coexists. Um and I think if you were to hear that whole conversation, you'd be like, oh, this person must be in denial. They think they have like 10 more years to live, but they're literally dying in front of me. And I don't think that's no, so, so much denial in this type of case as it is an expression of a hope, of a fantasy. And I think it's okay to express that and allow that to be expressed. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I go back and forth on hope and on the use of it. Um, and I think it just depends on the clinical situation because I think a lot of times hope can be beneficial, but I think a lot of times it can also be that piece that keeps people from acceptance. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, that's so interesting. I, I actually think that hope is, um, I think hope is, I think while someone is living and breathing, I think there's always hope. And I think that what you hope for can change, that what you hope for can change over time. Mm, yeah, that's a good and point. So, because, you know, as a palliative care doc, hope is actually really important for my patients to have, for my caregivers to have. Um, I actually get really, really worried when they are not hoping for something. Because um, then I do worry about, you know, are they depressed? Are they suicidal? Like, what's happening? Because um, every single person, even when they are initially diagnosed, when they're going through, let's say, a cancer treatment, when they are um, dying from dementia, all of them at at whatever stage that they're in, they're still hoping for something, most of them. And when they're not, uh, I, I actually do get worried. 
Yeah, I mean, so the again to the coin analogy because I'm fresh out of analogies today. The on the other side of the coin of hope is fear. So whatever you're hoping for, you're fearing the exact same thing. Yeah, that it may not happen. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just all of this is part of the human experience and Mm -hmm. none of us are fully enlightened and we all deal and cling with different things at different times. And, you know, it's hard to say how anyone's going to respond when they're actively dying until they get to that point. Absolutely. Um, do you want to give the audience kind of like a elevator spiel on what hospice and palliative medicine is? Sure. Um, so they're actually, so let me talk about, so I'll give you the guiding philosophy behind both of them and then I'll divvy up the definition. So, The guiding philosophy behind uh, palliative care and hospice care is making sure that you um, get the type of medical care that aligns with your values. Um, The main difference is that palliative care, first of all, is very different from hospice care. Uh, Palliative care is an extra layer of support Um, as you go through any sort of kind of stressful illness, uh, such as cancer, dementia, COPD, heart failure, ALS, any sort of organ failure. And the idea behind palliative care is that as you're going through a treatment, so let's say for cancer, you're on the latest immunotherapy, as you're going through this treatment, Um, that you get the support you need in terms of managing, let's say, side effects from that treatment that you're getting or managing side effects from the cancer itself and making sure you're also kind of attended to emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, because that illness, let's say that cancer, doesn't just affect your physical being it affects your entire life. So um, it's really a more holistic way of caring for someone that's going through a hard time. And in the example of cancer, one of the most common things we help with is around pain management. So we'll help folks who are experiencing pain from the cancer to make the pain more tolerable so that they can sleep better, they can um, go to work so that they can go for a walk, Uh, whatever that is, the idea is really to control the pain enough so that it's tolerable. Um, So, and importantly, uh, palliative care can be provided with ongoing life prolonging treatment as well as curative treatment. And I think that's really important because people often wait too long to uh, get palliative care on board, but we should really be on board pretty early, if possible, around the time of a new diagnosis. Um, So that's palliative care. And palliative care, we can follow folks for months, for years, um, from the time of diagnosis onwards. Yeah, that's a great great introduction. Um, And I think the way that you're going to separate the two is going to be very helpful for people because I feel like there's so many patients 
that hear one and associate with the other and they just think that they're dying immediately. Yeah. And so I, I will say there are folks that I've seen as a palliative care physicians that I've followed for years because they're, they, let's say, have cancer, but their cancer is now more of a chronic illness with the like amazing treatments that we now have. Um, hospice care <clears throat> is very different in the sense of the timing of it is different. So hospice care is truly meant to be um, about improving the quality of life, your comfort near the end of life. So ideally in the last months of your life, having hospice care on board is going to be helpful for you um, to live as well as possible with the time that's left, but also to support your family members or the caregivers that are around you that need help adapting and coping with the fact that um, you're nearing kind of the end of your life. So that's what hospice care is about. And uh, that is truly really fantastic end of life care. Uh, but that it, you know, is, so yeah. I think that's the main difference is the time frame in which it's available. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you've taken a little bit of a different path and now you're kind of running your own business and doing a couple types of different virtual work and, and web-based work. Um, do you want to talk about that? Tell us your story there, because I think that's really interesting. And I think there's lots of physicians and probably non-physicians that are, are curious on what their options are and how to take control of the working environment. So that, so um, what you're referring to is I started a caregiver, caregiver coaching service called a Pine EMD with um, a couple of my colleagues, uh, one other palliative care doctor, a social worker and a chaplain and we virtually support caregivers um, through that service. And then the other service I started or the other organization I started is called Hippocratic Adventures where we help US trained physicians um, relocate abroad and to really live out their dream of living abroad. Um, so interestingly, the this all kind of came together because of, I would say, palliative care, because um, one of the most common questions we ask when we interact with patients is, you know, what does a good life look like to you? What do good days look like to you? What brings you joy? You know, these are some common questions we ask. And after asking these questions for several years, of course, I asked myself those same questions, you know, mm -hmm. what brings me joy? What does a good life mean to me? Um, and I realized that at that time, when, about five years ago, when I was asking myself these questions, I was working at a very academic hospital in Boston, and there was a very clear kind of path there. Um, it involved a lot of publishing, a lot of scholarship, um, and for me, I think deep down, I had always known that that environment, um, probably wasn't the best for me. And I always felt this conflict between, 
I don't really love publishing. Like I don't mm-hmm. really love research, but I'm in this environment where everyone else is doing it. All my friends are doing it. So I guess I got to like write something, like publish something. I don't even care what, just publish something. But so I always had this conflict between I don't really want to publish um, and the pressure from that environment to do a lot of research to publish. And it just wasn't something that I, I enjoyed. I think a lot of my friends do. It just wasn't something that I personally enjoyed. Um, and so when I asked myself this question of, uh, and, and at the same time, these same colleagues that were around me, I mean, they were experiencing moral injury, they were experiencing burnout. And I knew that if I stayed in that environment, give me five years maybe, and I'm probably gonna experience burnout myself and I'm probably gonna be on the road to moral injury myself. And so I saw this life kind of unfolding and I didn't like it. I was like, oh, is this it? Is this what my life is gonna look like? I'm gonna stay here. Then I'm gonna constantly deal with this conflict of, I don't really wanna do research, but I guess I'm forced to do research. And five years down the road, I'm probably gonna experience moral injury like everyone around me. And I didn't love it. It didn't excite me. (laughs) Um, It was really hard to actually get excited about that path. And when I asked myself the same questions I ask my patients, I realized that one of my values that was actually really important to me was that I really wanted to experience life outside the U.S., Um, I grew up partially in the U.S. I spent a lot of summers in India, and we went kind of back and forth. And so I had this other cultural experience, and it was so formative and so important for me that when we had uh, our own child, that was something I wanted to share with them. And so living outside of the U.S. was something that was really important to me. And obviously, when I looked at the life I was living, the path I was on was probably not going to take me outside the U.S. Um, And so that was around the time when I started looking. We went on this uh, vacation to Spain around the time that we were trying to figure out what our next step was. And it was uh, January in Boston. There was some polar vortex happening. And we took this flight out to Spain. And we land in southern Spain and it's sunny. They're like orange trees. We're like <laughs> on these crazy, like exploring cobbled, cobblestone castles and things like that. And uh, my husband and I looked at each other and we were like, what if we lived here? Like we want this lifestyle. Right. And we want to learn a new language. We want to experience a new culture. And we want to share that with our kids. And I think that was kind of the process where we then started looking at, you know, how can an American doctor practice abroad? And we posted on White Coat, we posted on Reddit, um, all of all of that. And we didn't get much of a response. But through some of the Facebook searches we did, we did find other physicians that had moved to Canada or the UK or New Zealand or Australia or France or um, Sweden. And we were like, oh my God, it's possible. You can 
move abroad as a physician and live abroad. Like this is amazing. And how come I've never heard of this, you know? And so that's really kind of what sparked us to create Hippocratic Adventures as a resource, as um, the place to go for a physician who's looking for an experience abroad and that you don't have to, you know, reinvent the wheel. And uh, eventually we we, uh, started our own adventure and we moved to Portugal and um, it was actually this move out of that academic setting that allowed me to be creative, uh, that allowed us to start Hippocratic Adventures. And I took that experience to start uh, a PyMEMD coaching where we um, serve caregivers. So it's actually all very related to, you know, that question we ask, which is what brings you joy? What does a good day look like to you? And for me, the way that I had been living, that wasn't giving me joy. It's incredibly brave to kind of leave the set path. And I think it's, you keep, you mentioned creativity, like the system as we have it doesn't want, it doesn't encourage creativity unless it's published. And I think the limitation of creativity, just that alone creates moral injury. Absolutely. <clears throat> I think that's 100% true. Um, I, it, was, it is scary. I wouldn't even say it was scary. It still is scary. <laughs> if I'm being honest, truly, it really sometimes is scary where I'm like, oh, my God, what did I do? Um, why did I leave like this prestigious position? And then I'm like, I remind myself that, you know what, I'm like much happier in this choice that I made than the choice that I had previously made. Um, And yeah, sometimes it feels crazy. Like there's sometimes some days that my husband and I look at each other and we're like, what did we do? Like we were in over our heads for sure. Like this is so different than what our friends are doing, what our colleagues are doing. Um, And to this day, sometimes I get really freaked out like, oh crap, what did I do? I am definitely not following that traditional path that I thought I was going to follow. What is it that freaks you out? Is it, is it the money? Is it the geography? Is it um, what is it? I think it is the fact that sometimes you feel really alone mm. in the sense of when I was working at that institution or when I was working in the U.S., I had colleagues all around me that were doing the same thing, that were kind of following the same path. And in choosing this path, in choosing to move abroad and creating like a a business and now I am in the process of trying to get licensed in Portugal. It's a whole other topic. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't see too many people following on this path with me. Um, And I think that's the scary part um, is that parts of this journey, you're actually on it quite alone in a way that I wasn't before. And the, some of my friends that I talk to from residency or fellowship or just colleagues from uh, practicing, 
sometimes they don't understand why we chose to up and move. And um, that's scary too, right? Because you do want the people that are important to you to understand you. Um, I mean, I would argue that's what we all want more than anything else. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes that's scary too. And so I think, I think it's that experience of uh, when I look on this path, I don't see too many people next to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big leap and it, it sounds like it's a daily kind of questioning of your faith in this decision but for good reason. And I think that also just highlights the importance of it. Yeah. <clears throat> I also think that, you know, the U S in the U S I feel like your identity is tied so much to your profession. Um, one of the first things you're asked when you go to a social event, like a dinner party or a birthday party is, hi, I'm so-and-so like, Oh, and what do you do for work? You know? you're really defined by what you do for work and it's much harder to define yourself by something else, by other aspects of who you are. Totally. I heard on a podcast recently, go as long as you can in a conversation without asking someone what they do and you'll learn so much more about that person. You will because so it's interesting because in Portugal, I've lived here for three years. I've gone to so many birthday parties because of my kids. And not a single person in these three years has directly asked me what I do for work. Like not really? a single person. Sometimes it comes up in conversation. Like naturally it would come up. Mm-hmm. But no one has directly asked me that question. And for me, who was making this transition into um, coaching and Hippocratic Adventures, that was such a blessing because I didn't have to constantly limit myself to I'm a physician, I'm a physician, I'm a physician, I'm a physician. I could actually be other things too. Um, and so I think for me, that was a real blessing. Yeah, it sounds like a moment of freedom. Honestly, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's also the scary part is that all of a sudden I am no longer defined, defining myself by being a physician, just just a physician. I see myself as so much more than that. And that's also scary Um, because at least when you define yourself as a physician, you fit in a box, you know, you have a place and you fit in there really well. But that's exactly why you left. Yes, and that is exactly why. <laughs> but they're like, but but there are advantages to fitting in, right? There are advantages to being on that path. Uh, it feels safe. Uh, ultimately, for me, it didn't feel that safe. But right, um, right. But yeah, I think there is a comfort in that. Yeah, um, I'm gonna ask a self-indulgent question here. So, like many of us, I. I'm speaking for myself here currently, though. When it comes to student debt, mm-hmm. how realistic is it to to kind of have a Hippocratic adventure when you're still dealing with student debt? Like, should you deal with your debt and then leave? Or is it possible to deal with both at the same time? Or 
any insight into any of that? I'm sure this has come up with other people. <clears throat> so that's a really great question. And I think I always start with, well, I'm going to say I'm not a financial advisor, but I think <laughs> I always go back to the question of what's really important to you? Um, what does a good day look like to you? What does living well look like to you now with what you know about your life? And depending on what comes up and what your priorities are, I think there are ways to address the student debt. And there are ways to potentially even live abroad and pay off your student loans. And I think of this because if you get clear on what's important to you, like what's important to you right now, maybe your number one goal right now is, you know what, I need to pay off that student debt. Otherwise, I'm not, really not going to feel good. Um, then you're, if you are clear on that, then you can make some life choices that can help you pay off your student debt. Um, if part of your values is actually, I want to live abroad while my parents are still youngish and like healthy, so I don't have to worry about them aging so much yet, mm -hmm. um, then maybe you can find an experience where you can work and make enough to potentially pay off, continue to pay off student debt, or find an opportunity where you can take part in the uh, student loan forgiveness program, which is possible if you were to work for, let's say, the U.S. government abroad. You know, there are opportunities to work for the U.S. government at military bases, at military oh. hospitals, where you mm -hmm. can live abroad and still be eligible for um, student loan forgiveness. That's uh, a good was, thought. There was another clinician I interviewed who is an EM doc, and she was near the, she was, I think, in the last year or two of paying off her loans. She moved to New Zealand and she budgeted so that she can live in New Zealand and continue to pay off her student debt and pay off her mortgage in the U.S. So I think it all just comes back to what are your priorities? And once you're clear on what those priorities are, you can make adjustments um, to your lifestyle and how you're choosing to live it. Yeah, those are really good points. The military base thing is a good idea in terms of like public service loan forgiveness. That's personally the road I'm going down. And I have very short time, not terribly short, but I'm on the downhill side of it for sure. Um, yeah, and I would also say, you know, I know plenty of psychiatrists, for example, who created um, like a telepsychiatry practice and they charge the rates that they feel comfortable with, that they feel good about. And they end up making either the same as they would have in the U.S. so that they can continue to pay off their student loans um, or because their cost of living and let's say the place that they chose to live in, let's say in, I don't know, France, was lower than what they were spending in Boston, mm -hmm. um, they end up saving a lot more as well. So I think it all comes down to um, what is what are your priorities right now? What's really important to you right now? Right. And it's essentially like, without calling it that, it's essentially acceptance and commitment therapy, like realizing what your values are and c committing to the living by those values. Yeah. <clears throat> and making choices 
so that you can um, live, so that you can uh, make choices that actually prioritize your priorities, you know? Yeah. Are, are there, I mean, have you found in your um, Hippocratic Adventures work that there's certain specialties that this lends easier to? Um, I would say it, it's all about getting creative. And so I, I say that because I don't think I've heard of every single specialty story on how they made it happen, which means that there, there's always the possibility of making it happen for your specialty. I do think that for certain specialties like psychiatry, um, psychiatry does have a tradition of having pri private practices. It always has. And for them to um, charge, uh, to not accept insurance has al also been part of their tradition. So I think making the leap to a telepsychiatry self-pay practice is not that far of a leap. Mm -hmm. or psychiatry in that field. And I think that particular field lends itself really well to um, creating kind of a portable telepsychiatry practice. I think um, I think about the exact opposite of that, which would be maybe a trauma surgeon, right? Like the exact opposite of that, where their dexterity, their clinical skills have to be used consistently um, for them to continue to practice surgery, let's say. And right. I recently um, interviewed a trauma surgeon who practices partially in the U.S. She practices clinically as a trauma surgeon in the U.S. And the other half of the time, she loves global health and global um, promoting kind of trauma surgery in low resource settings. And that's where she does her kind of academic research time. And that she does that from Spain. And so she has found a way to, to be able to keep her clinical skills alive in trauma surgery. And at the same time, be able to live abroad and do that research component abroad, which she really enjoys. So I would say, I think there are ways to find um, that can work for your specialty. So, um, I mean, I often hear from surgeons who are really worried about understandably their clinical um, skills, their manual dexterity, uh, if they don't use it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought the this recent inter interview we did with a trauma surgeon who was living in Spain and then goes to the U.S. for a couple weeks uh, to do trauma surgery, I think really kind of spoke to that. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I'm living living a split life sounds like a good way if you can navigate it. It just sounds incredibly tricky to figure that out. I think once again, it goes back to your priorities, right? Like for her, one of her priorities was to live in Europe because her her husband is from France, and so they wanted to um, experience kind of the European culture. And that was so important to both of them. That was so important to her that she found a different way to make it work. Um, mm. and that isn't to say that she didn't have people say it wasn't possible. I think she had a lot of people <laughs> kind of, uh, give her the side eye, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it just matters. Is it important enough for you to live, to work through that discomfort. Right. 
Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And to bring it back to mortality, do you feel like you're living on the way to a good death? Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting that that you asked that because within a month of moving to Portugal, I was walking, like I was going for a walk along the river and I thought to myself, I don't regret I don't have this regret weighing on me. And before I had that regret of, I wonder what life would be like if we moved abroad. Like mm-hmm. that was something I always wondered. And when I was walking a month into living in Portugal, um, I thought, hmm, I don't wonder that anymore because now I know. And I think that gives me a lot of comfort actually, because then I feel like okay, I'm living life the way I I want to, the way I feel kind of whole about it, Mm -hmm. that I'm not wondering anymore. And to me, like going through the huge transition that it was, um, not wondering and not having that regret of, I wish I had, I wonder what would have happened if not having that, uh, actually feels like a huge weight off my shoulders. And um, I think because of that, I, I feel kind of the sense of peace of, okay, I am choosing to live how I, what based on what's important to me. And it's not that there there are days that are hard, right? There are days that I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? I'm crazy. <laughs> um, but there are so many more days where I'm just like, wow, are we really doing this? This is awesome, you know? Or just that sense of I get to be creative um, in a way that I couldn't before. Or I am applying for the Portuguese medical license here. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I got to try. Otherwise, I'm going to wonder, you know. Um, So, yeah, in making this move abroad, I I don't have that. I won't have that regret. And I don't have that what if I had done this question. Yeah, that's beautiful. And congrats on taking that step and, you know, walking through the door to see what was there. And it's, it's not without risk for sure. And I always think, you know, what's the worst that could happen, right? The worst that can happen is we moved here, I didn't like it, or we couldn't make it financially. And then we're like, all right, let's just, let's move back. Right, exactly. It's like, once you realize what the downside is, is is it really that bad? Like, no, you have a, you have an education level that you're insulated that you might not find the perfect situation or the perfect job, but you'd be able to come home and find work pretty much immediately. And But I think that's true of all physicians though. And yeah. we have um, on our website, we have this guide called how to start your adventure. It's completely free. So you can check it out. But the second step, I think in that, like, how do you start your adventure? It's a three-step process. The second step of that is about confronting your fears and planning mm. for them. So like literally, literally writing out, all the worst case scenarios that could happen if you were to actually move abroad 
Did you get this from Tim Ferriss? Yes, yes. This is fear, fear setting. Fear setting, yes. Yeah. Um, so if, for folks that haven't heard about it, it's basically writing out kind of the worst fears you may have in moving abroad or in changing jobs or whatever it is for you. And then writing out ways that you can make it make that fear so that it either does not come true or ways to mitigate it. Yeah, and, um, exactly. I went through that. And I, that's part of the reason that's even in that guide is because I literally use that. And when I was able to write out all the fears I had about moving abroad and come up with a plan for every single one of them, I was like, okay. Um, it's not that scary. It's not that scary because I have a plan for like all the possible scenarios that scare me right now. Right. Um, and so I encourage like folks that are interested in moving abroad to take a look at that guide and really use it because I don't think this is something that is, I think it's actually accessible to more physicians um, than you'd think. And I think it's just a matter of really working through some of your fears, some of your preconceived notions mm -hmm. of what a physician career looks like as well. Totally. Um, Ashwini, we've spent almost an hour together. Is there anything else that you were thinking about leading up to this conversation that you want to talk about? No, I mean, honestly, I think I just want people to take a step back and ask yourself, you know, what brings you joy now? What does a good day look like to you? This is something I ask myself. It's something I ask my caregivers. I ask my patients this. And I think it, I would say that question has changed the trajectory that I've taken in my life. And it's changed um, the way that I interact and who I interact with as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Um, it was a great conversation and I think people will learn a whole lot of different things from it. Um, <laughs> and I wish you the best. Well, thank you so much. And it was a pleasure to be on here and to chat. Um, so thank you. Do you want to mention where people can find your stuff? Oh, yes, sure. So for those caregivers who are interested in coaching to get, I would say, better as caregivers and to better advocate for their loved ones, you can find me at epineemd.com. That's E-P-I-O-N-E-M-D.com. And for those physicians who are thinking about moving abroad or just curious about it, you can check us out at HippocraticAdventures.com. So that's H-I-P-P-O-C-R-A-T-I-C Adventures.com. Perfect. Thanks again. The contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only. A patient-physician relationship is never established through this medium, and nothing on this podcast should be considered medical advice. If you are having medical or emotional issues, please seek evaluation and treatment from a trained and trusted professional. The views reflected in this podcast do not reflect the views of any entity outside of the conversation. Please share this with at least three people. Thanks for listening.